0: Welcome to the Cosmic Savannah with Dr. Daniel Kanema
1: and Dr. Jacinta Hayes. Each episode will be giving you a behind-the-scenes look at world-class astronomy and astrophysics happening under African skies.
0: Let us introduce you to the people involved, the technology we use, the exciting work we do, and the fascinating discoveries we make.
1: Sit back and relax as we take you on a safari through the skies.
0: All right, so welcome to episode 34. Hi, everyone. (laughs) Welcome back. Uh, What's happened since we last spoke?
1: We have been nominated for an award.
0: Yes, we've been nominated for an award. For
1: a communications award.
0: Yeah.
1: We have a small request from you, our dear listeners, if you think this podcast is good... Or even if you don't, (laughs) then I'm not sure why you're listening, but that's fine. Everyone's welcome. If you have access to Apple Podcasts, either on a Mac or an iOS device, an iPhone or an iPad, it would be very, very helpful to us if you would be able to leave us a review. Just a short one, anything, say kind of what you like or even what you don't like and give us your rating. Maybe we suggest five stars. (laughs) Up to you. Uh, You know, up to you. (laughs) Yeah, we would be incredibly grateful if you could spend some time, uh, a little bit of time to do that for us.
0: Speaking of awards, you've also been awarded some meerkata, more meerkata.
1: Oh, nice segue, Dan. (laughs) Mm, Thank you very much. (laughs) Yes, uh, so you might remember in episode, what, 32...
0: When we spoke to Jacinta about her work. Yeah, it was either 31 or 32. Cosmic Beasts.
1: Cosmic Beasts and where to find them, that's right. We were talking about my paper that came out, which was the discovery of two giant radio galaxies with the Meerkat telescope. Since then, I applied for some more time with Meerkat to what we call do follow-up observations. So we're looking at the same patch of sky again, we're looking at the same galaxies, but now we're using a different frequency, uh, a lower frequency. And this is going to tell us things like the age of the electrons in the system at different points. And this is going to tell us, you know, has the black hole switched off and then switched back on again? What kind of crazy stuff is it doing? How old are these jets? This is going to tell us about the physics of the system and the black hole. Yeah, so we have been – we've just found out that our proposal was approved – there's a priority level A and priority level B for approved projects, and ours is level B, so they'll be trying to sort of fit in our observations in between the priority A ones, but we, we're hoping that within the next year that'll be observed, and so I'll have a nice new sparkling data set to play with and some new science to do.
0: It's awesome. Congrats.
1: Thank you. It's exciting.
0: Yeah, so the way these telescopes work, and it works the same for SALT, and a lot of telescopes is, is scientists need to put together a, a science case. This is something they really want to look at, uh, and then they put together this proposal, it goes to a committee, and they decide who is going to get the time. Because obviously the time is, is valuable and there is, there is not unlimited time to observe. So your proposal needs to be quite strong and, and you get selected and then you can get the data you're after.
1: Yeah, I think there was something like 300 proposals put forward. So, you know, Meerkat's very popular internationally, and this is one of the first calls for proposals to be submitted from all around the world. Previously, it was only sort of selected institutes or from South Africa. So, yeah, this was a nice big worldwide one, and, and it just shows that if you build a telescope, they will come.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's going really well. I think it's going to be we, – we keep saying it, but – the. The markets just growing leaps and bounds.
1: Yeah, and fascinating science cases that were put forward. Really, really cool. So I, I can't wait for some of those results to come forward and we can start talking about them. But speaking of big results, I'm not <laughs> as good as, at segues as you are, Dan, but uh, what happened with the Mars rover in the end?
0: Your segue was about segues. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the Mars rover was great the, the landing uh I mean, if you didn't see it you really should have a look online uh, the the footage f- firstly the fact that the thing landed that they they pulled it off
1: it was successful uh, it yeah. was
0: successful you know we watched the coverage live the notification that the rover had touched down huge excitement everything had gone perfectly and and it sent back photos within minutes uh, a couple of sort of small photos low resolution photos and everyone was super excited about those and then (laughs) the excitement kept flowing because in the the next week we just got these incredible like high resolution photos the first one of the rover while it's being lowered down by the sky crane onto the ground in midair in high resolution and then followed that up with video of the entire descent which you know so some video of the parachute deploying video of the heat shield getting Uh, released and falling to the ground Uh, then video from the sky crane as it sort of does its maneuver chooses the landing site and then lowers it down and then this footage from the rover up at the sky crane and the the sky crane down at the rover and there's dust and there's (laughs) gas and there's fire and like it's just and it's on another planet like you're in the middle of this device like which is full of rockets and just it's so cool i was i mean i was so excited like i stayed up for that press release too obviously because there were hints that it was going to be the video Mm -hmm. um yeah i mean and to get that sort of beam back now uh in in high resolution and and then of course the the coolest thing about it all is that the scientists who design these rovers they don't put any effort into that sort of coverage or those sorts of images no they're
1: far too busy doing their jobs doing doing their jobs for the science
0: and i mean it's something obviously we feel very passionate about otherwise we wouldn't be here talking to you but the 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 public outreach aspect of astronomy and and space exploration is is massive these days in the in the era of social media and nasa did
1: a fantastic job
0: they really did it was
1: spectacular
0: but but the way they did it they appointed like I mean, I I belittle it, but, like, they appointed some dude, (laughs) basically, and said, listen, if you want to put some cameras on it, that's cool, as long as they don't get in the way of anything else, (laughs) and they don't break anything, like, and they don't cause, Mm. like, any issues. If you can do that, it's fine. You can do whatever you like. So, he, like, went and got off-the-shelf little GoPro cameras and stuck them on the rover and sent them to Mars. as you do. As one does. (laughs) I mean, it's, yeah, like, it's very cool, and... I think the the success of that sort of coverage, the millions, hundreds of millions of people who viewed it, just shows that this is something that society demands now. If you're doing this level of research, yep.
1: pretty cool stuff. You're yeah. actually you're actually gushing. Ah, <laughs> I love it. All right, let's bring it back down to earth now. Somewhat. Sort of. <laughs> back into South Africa, we have a guest on the show today, as usual, and it is our. Very first guest that we ever had on the Cosmic Savannah in episode one, come back to talk to us. It is Dr. Moses Mahatsi from the South African Astronomical Observatory. Moses is a salt astronomer, so he is one of the astronomers who run the salt telescope at night, and he's going to tell us about what that's like, and uh, he also is going to tell us this time about his scientific research.
0: Yeah, the last time Moses joined us was some time ago now.
1: 2019 in season one.
0: Yeah, when we were young. <laughs> um and he he spoke to us a little bit about SALT the telescope and and what it does. Uh he mentioned a little bit how how the observations go. But that's all changed now with COVID. Mm. So he he talked a little bit about the observing through COVID, through the lockdowns uh and and how they managed that because SALT kept running and most of the telescopes did. And then, as you said, he, we got into science, which we didn't really get into last time, uh, and he's doing fascinating science.
1: Yeah, he works on, I mean, kind of everything inside a galaxy, <laughs> the whole life cycle of galaxies, the cycle of the, the gas and the dust and the stars and the molecules, and he kind of studies all of this stuff and how it relates together um, using a dizzying array of telescopes at all different wavelengths, from millimeter and radio to the optical, near-infrared. I think even ultraviolet. So yeah, we can hear all about the life cycles of galaxies from Moses. Let's hear from him. With us today is Dr. Moses Mahazi, who was our very first guest on The Cosmic Savannah back in Season 1, Episode 1. And he joins us again today to talk about his science. Welcome, Moses.
2: Thank you. Thanks for the invite again. Glad to see I didn't scare people. Away or?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it's good to have you back. Welcome, Moses. Nice to have a chance to catch up with you, see what's changed in your science and in your life in the meantime. And maybe we can get a little bit more in depth as to what you're working on.
1: Yeah, so what has changed, Moses, since the last time we spoke to you? Obviously, COVID hit and you, you must be still working as a salt astronomer. How has that changed your your work life?
2: Yeah, so, so COVID's been, at least for me personally... It's been quite challenging to, to get that going. But I will say that as a, as a telescope, we've done quite well, because compared to other telescopes that are our size, we've been able to utilize a lot of the time that we've been under lockdown to actually get observations done. And our efficiency at observing has not been that far off from our regular observing efficiency. So that's that's been quite challenging and, and interesting as well to be able to do that. Why is that? Not that long after lockdown, we were able to observe remotely. So we were able to connect to Sutherland, where the telescope is, via connection to the SAO in, in Cape Town. And from our homes, then connect to the SAO so that we can connect to Sutherland and then be able to do operations of the telescope. So we have either been observing at the SAO site in Cape Town or from our homes during this whole pandemic.
1: Did you observe from home or from the SAAO building? I've
2: been observing from home this whole time.
1: I imagine that comes with some of its own challenges.
2: (laughs) Yes, there definitely some challenges that come with that, including the ambient noise around you is quite a bit of a challenge. And for me, there happened to be some construction work right next door to my place. Oh no! It's been a lovely time uh, (laughs) because even though observing from home, we essentially when we observe we're essentially on night shift. So we observe at night, and then during the day we have to sleep. And the rest of the world continues while we're trying to sleep during the day, <laughs> such as, you know, neighbors trying to go to work if they're allowed to and people outside doing things. And yes, uh, it's, been, it's been quite an interesting time.
1: <laughs> I'm sure. But well done for getting through that.
0: Not to mention just the fact that you don't get a trip up to Sutherland in a nice remote place with some clear skies and quiet and just the yes. chance to escape <laughs> from the madness for a little bit.
2: Yes, I'm, I'm not going to lie. The past almost a year has been interesting in that you start to appreciate some aspects of Sutherland you may not have appreciated before like just being able to be away from everything else and just you observing sometimes it's quite nice to be able to just get away from from everything and even our work balance as well it's The same for observing and even for people who do virtual conferences, because normally you're able to get away and people know that you're away, you're observing, you're doing things. However, if you're not quite physically in Sutherland, sometimes there's a thing where people know that you're around and you also know that you're around. So there's a temptation to not be as good Mm -hmm. with kind of separating those things. And so getting that balance while working from home has been also quite interesting. The other thing that I should mention as well, South Africa's internet probably not being as fast as in some other countries, I've been quite impressed with how we are able to transfer all that data and do this observation from... From so far away, even though there have been a few problems along the way, overall I think I've been quite impressive. Being able to be able to go to the kitchen, grab something from a fridge, come and sit down, and kind of click uh, and get get salt to do something is quite, <laughs> quite 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 impressive, I think.
1: That is very cool that you're just at home and you're controlling this gigantic telescope out in Sutherland staring at the skies.
2: And scary too, if I may. <laughs> say <that>. In the <laughs> beginning it's like well, <laughs> something goes wrong. And it's I think for those of us who have to go to on site to observe, just the being at the telescope and hearing the sounds and being able to sometimes go to the a computer or a system and look at it and turn it on and off, it's very different if it's remote. You you can't quickly check, is the weather really like what it looks like from the cameras or is it worse than that, right? The rain sensor goes off, is it really raining Yeah, or not?
1: a lot of small, subtle, but important differences. And then
2: even turning things on and off. Um, sometimes if something goes wrong and if to turn something on off, we sometimes we have to physically press a button and we're not there. The one thing that we've been very lucky in that the on-site staff have also been, I think, very accommodating and helpful in that they probably have had a few more duties to do than they would have normally in that if we are yeah, having some problem where they need to go up. And so that's been quite helpful that there's yeah, staff up there
1: a problem that many South Africans are very familiar with, load shedding, oh, yes. where the the power goes out for several hours at a time. Have you been affected by that at all?
2: Yes. Thankfully, I have a UPS that this. That I think, help things along. And the telescope itself, there's power supplies and things at the telescope. So the telescope itself can can survive, even though when there is a power cut, sometimes there is a bit of a change over a period that can sometimes cause a bit of issues. But in general, it's been probably a bigger fear for at our homes especially initially and people couldn't go to the observatory but now if you can't cope at home you you can go to the observatory and there's space and there's a remote observing station in there but for some of our operators for example you know you have you don't have people living in Cape Town and so it, it is a bit of an issue then because you can't travel many many hours sometimes to especially if you have a family right they have kids that have needs at home a lot of interesting challenges have come up and it kind of makes you appreciate sometimes things you didn't appreciate before but yeah things like load shedding definitely throw some curveballs into that and then I, I had an instance where I was like oh my UPS is working right cool and then I'm like wait how long is it gonna go for is there- <laughs> <laughs> it things just gonna go but the connection to Sutherland, yeah, when that goes off, that doesn't only affect us because sometimes there's there's also other people at other telescopes observing remotely as well in Sutherland. And for those, there have been a few people who've been who've gone up to Sutherland and actually observed in the the steerable telescopes. So there's some interesting experiences there of uh, Sutherland and during during COVID and lockdown and no one's around. <laughs>
0: We should point out that for our international listeners, load shedding is something that happens here just when the the grid doesn't have enough capacity to power the entire country. So then various areas get their power turned off intermittently for an hour or two at a time, and then it sort of moves on to the next person. (laughs) So that's something we have to live with here occasionally.
1: Yes, we share the power around.
2: <laughs> and 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 going back another point with the, the whole that we don't have maybe as fast as internet as maybe some other countries would have, is in the beginning, one of the things is how do we make it so that those of us who are not at the observatory, whose connections may be not as good as that, are able to observe because a lot of data transfer going on and you need to be connected constantly. And so I think the team really did a good job on kind of, setting things up so that we are able to run software and run things there from, from remote because it's not that, that simple uh, to be able to do that.
1: Let's move on to your science, Moses. So do you actually use salt for your work? Well, let's start from the beginning. What, what do you work on? What is your research involve?
2: If I had to give a one-word answer, I'd say galaxies. But uh, <laughs> a few more words. <laughs> My work revolves around studying star formation in galaxies, predominantly nearby galaxies, and also how the gas flows in and out of these galaxies and is changed by different processes such as star formation.
1: All right. So breaking that down. So let's start with what what is star formation.
2: Star formation is just stars forming in, in other galaxies because when we, when we look at other galaxies, even on our own galaxy, we see that the number of stars in the galaxy aren't constant. Stars, new stars are, are formed and some of these stars eventually die as well. Um, so. You have some galaxies where there is continuous star formation still going. So at this moment, there are stars forming in these galaxies right now, um, and we call these galaxies star-forming galaxies. And you have some galaxies where there is a very low amount of star formation happening in these galaxies. You can generally divide galaxies into those kinds of groups: galaxies that are forming stars currently, and galaxies that are don- not forming stars currently.
0: And we should point out that you say that I mean stars are forming. This this is a, a process that takes millions of years. Um, it's it's not like they're just, I mean, they are popping up, uh, you know, at a rate of generally sort of one a year. But, you know, for one star to form from the collapse of a big cloud of gas takes millions and millions of years.
2: Thanks for mentioning that. It's not as exciting as maybe the deaths of stars where you can maybe see, ah, oh, there's an explosion over there, it's a supernova or, or some star is dying. A lot of the way we study this is through looking at young stars. So we we can't necessarily see stars forming at this instant, but what we can see is stars that we know have formed much more recently than other kinds of stars. So when we look at galaxies, we try and see signatures of stars that are very young, and that is what we use to um, infer things like uh, star formation rate uh, and, and other ways as well. But what, what we have when you look at the universe is just a snapshot and the snapshot gives us, it's kind of like if someone took a photo of everyone in the world, right? If you're trying to study human beings, you have to use the, all the information you get from this photo, including babies and old people, to kind of give you an idea of what's happening with human beings. And it's the same with star formation and other processes in the universe. As we take a photo and then look, okay, look, there are the babies there. If they're, if they're small babies, you know that their babies formed recently, right? So it's new humans were <laughs> born recently in the same way with stars is that we're not necessarily counting, hey, something showed up, it's a bright big star. No, we're looking at really young stars. Um, in some cases, also looking at areas that we think stars will form from to study
1: star formation.
0: Yeah, we used the same analogy with galaxies in, in a previous episode. Oh,
1: Yeah, Paolo, Paolo, Sarah.
0: <laughs> yeah, so for looking at galaxies at different times. Just by taking, doing sort of population dynamics, right? Looking at population at different times. And the same thing applies for stars. So, you know, we, we don't get to watch the things evolve uh, in our lifetime. So we, we look at them at different snapshots. That's a a big part of astronomy.
2: That's true. And another element to that is, is all except for our Milky Way and the very closest galaxies. For most other galaxies, we don't even see the stars individually. So we have to take the light from all the stars in the galaxy, figure out well, what fraction of this light comes from stars that are very young, what fraction isn't. These regions show signs that there are young stars forming there uh, or not. And we have to use all of these techniques and ways to figure out whether there's star formation because we can't individually count stars from galaxies or see stars in an individual way. So it really that complicates matters and can, can lead to some interesting uncertainties sometimes <laughs> when you're trying to figure this stuff out.
1: If I understand correctly, you're looking at how these stars influence the galaxies that they live inside. Is that correct?
2: Yes, that's one of the areas is, is yeah, how the stars, primarily how they influence the gas in these galaxies because we understand that gas is a very important component of how galaxies are and their evolution. For example, when we look at the galaxies that don't form stars, we see that there's a, they don't have much cold gas in them. Whereas galaxies that form many stars, we see that there's a lot of cold gas in these galaxies. And so we know then that we need this cold gas to be able to form stars. So if these, the stars that are present in the galaxy affect the gas in a certain way to either change whether it's hot or cold, or sometimes what can happen is that galaxies may lose their gas and get blown away or removed from the galaxy in some other way. So understanding all the things that can affect the gas in galaxies is very important to in order to understand how stars form and how galaxies will evolve.
0: And what sort of instruments are you using to do this? I mean, we've spoken previously about MeerKAT and how we can use radio telescopes to observe the gas in galaxies. What instruments or telescopes are you using?
2: A lot of my work is multi-wavelength work, so I use radio telescopes and optical telescopes and some data from UV and near-infrared for some of my work. As examples in the radio, some of my work involves using data from a interferometer called ALMA, which observes at higher frequencies than what Meerkat does. So it observes different kinds of light, and that allows you to see different kinds of things and one of the things it's really good at is probing the very cold gas in galaxies and that's because with it you can study some of the molecules um, that we find in gas in galaxies. I also do use some some telescopes as well that observe similar frequencies to meerkat studying H1 which I believe you've probably covered <laughs> in, in the podcast.
1: That's one of my favorite components of a galaxy the neutral hydrogen.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but you know so what's the nice thing about telescopes at ALMA is you can study the molecular hydrogen. So if if the the neutral hydrogen is the most sort of H1 or the single atomic hydrogen is floating up, there is the most common uh, element out there. The most common molecule is H2, molecular hydrogen. But the problem with molecular hydrogen is very, very difficult to directly detect it. So we kind of find a sneaky way to study it by studying The next most common molecule, which is carbon monoxide, Um, and with carbon monoxide, it's very common, not as common as molecular hydrogen, but it's very common, and it often occurs in similar areas to where the molecular hydrogen does, and we can use it to try and study what's going on with the molecular hydrogen, or at least the regions where molecular hydrogen is. Obviously, there's some complications there, but in general, that's why telescopes like ALMA can be quite useful. Then. In the near-infrared, you can study things like stellar populations. You can even study things like dust, which all tell you different things about the galaxies that you observe, and then you go into the optical as well, which you can study similar things, and you can also study another favorite transition of mine, which is the, the H-alpha line, which is one of the, the brightest emission lines in the optical, and that's one of the lines that we use to study the ionized gas in galaxies. And then, of course, you can study many, many other lines as well in the optical, and they'll tell you different things, and then you go to the UV as well, which tells you something different, and then you get radiation from the really hot, bright, young stars from from galaxies as well so all these different wavelengths tell you different things and there's different kinds of telescopes that you'd use to study these different wavelengths such as in the uv some of the best ways to do astronomy in the uv send the telescope up into space so that you don't have to deal with the atmosphere because one of the reasons we don't have to worry about a lot of well we do have to worry about skin cancer but not as much as we would otherwise is because the atmosphere absorbs a lot of uv radiation so if you want to study uv radiation often we, the best way is to just go into space to study that with optical telescopes, we can see optical light through the atmosphere, so we can have many telescopes that study the optical that are on the ground. In the near-infrared, we can have telescopes on the ground and some in space as well. And as you know, with radio telescopes, you can have them on the ground, like with, with Meerkat.
1: Oh, You really know your electromagnetic spectrum, don't you, Moses?
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and your molecules.
2: Um. <laughs> yeah, and there's also many different techniques that we use to study Like you've heard about interferometry and single-dish observing techniques in the the radio, and there's many different ways of studying these.
0: In the life cycle of a star, you've mentioned various things. So we spoke about neutral hydrogen, which is hydrogen with one proton and one electron. You've spoken about ionized gas, which is essentially gas which has lost its electrons. And this generally happens when gas is very, very hot uh, or energetic. And then you've spoken about molecular hydrogen and a couple of other molecules. How do these different molecules and looking at these different states of gas, how does that tell you about star formation? How does it tell you about the region that you're looking at?
2: Very good question there.
0: <laughs> it tells you a
2: lot, if I had to summarize that in a sentence. So it really tells you about the life cycle of the gas and it tells you whether you think a region is going to form stars. So in our knowledge stars form in areas where gas is very dense and this dense gas is also very cold often it's an area with like gas that is dense and that it's so it's gotten cold so it can kind of clump together and when it gets reaches enough uh, or high enough densities it can then start to form a star so if you have if you're looking at an area of a galaxy and you see that there's a lot of hot gas which is often it's ionized gas, that's unlikely to be an area where you will have young stars that are forming versus an area which has a lot of cold gas. That's an area that's more likely to have young stars forming in it. And then you have gas that's in between that and that's gas like the hydrogen gas, H1 atomic hydrogen gas. So you have these two kinds of extremes. So you have one end, which is some of the hottest gas is just ionized gas that's just super hot. And some of it is millions of, of Kelvin. And then you get to maybe tens of thousands of Kelvin. Uh, we have this ionized gas that we kind of tend to observe using something like H-alpha. And then gas that's not ionized sort of sitting there, that's a hydrogen atom and electron, like atomic hydrogen gas sitting around. And they can vary from maybe around thousands to maybe hundreds to maybe even tens of of, of Kelvin. And then you get this much colder gas that is at hundreds or tens of Kelvin. So you just have a higher density of material. And in these areas of sort of the colder, higher density of material, you can form stars in these areas. And in these areas as well, you reach densities that you can have more of these atoms interacting with each other. And when they do, you can form more molecules because there's a higher rate of interaction with all these atoms. And you can, it's so cold, you can form ices. And even when you have uh, dust in these areas as well, so these dust, these ices can become surfaces whereby you have more molecules forming and more complex molecules forming because you have a little area where these atoms and molecules can kind of sit on and wait for other molecules to interact with them and form more complex ones. So you can really get very, very complex chemistry showing up in these areas uh, where the gas is very cold and at higher density versus the other end where the gas is just so hot that it's it's whizzing around and it's very difficult for you to kind of come together and form complex molecules. This all tells you about the life cycle of the gas and, and also star formation. But when these stars form, as you see with the sun, there's a solar wind and it, it heats up the gas around it. And when that happens, you then start to change this gas that is probably mostly molecular into gas that's maybe more atomic and maybe then you form uh, ionized gas as well. So then these stars can then change the gas surrounding them into a state where it's a little more difficult to form new stars from. So then this gas will have to cool and then condense again to enable you to form new stars. So this is why there's what we call a process called feedback where forming new stars can affect whether new stars can form in the future.
1: Okay, so your work is all about studying all of the different components of a galaxy, what we call the the baryons, the, the yes. normal matter in the galaxy, and how this changes into other types. So the cycle of your neutral gas and then it can sometimes become ionized or sometimes it can become molecules and then it forms into stars and then stars explode and they kind of affect the rest of the gas, so they blow it out and then they and they also produce dust in the meantime. So this is how everything is interrelated and and your work is kind of uh, looks at all of those different components and therefore you need to use telescopes that are sensitive at different wavelengths uh, of the electromagnetic spectrum to see all of these different components of a galaxy. Now, you mentioned stellar feedback, so where the star kind of blows the gas out of the galaxy. I'm interested in that because I work on, as we've heard in a previous episode, AGN, so active galactic nuclei where there's a supermassive black hole in the centre which is doing all sorts of crazy things. And and that's blowing out gas from the galaxies, and we call that AGN feedback. But what you're talking about is something a bit different, isn't it? So this is feedback from normal stars.
2: That's true. And funny enough, I when people ask me about AGN, I'm always like, huh, but I care about the stars, not the AGN. So it's good that there are people <laughs> well, that care about the AGN feedback, but they but they're both processes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Technically. A supermassive black hole. Well, I guess it, we we don't know that it used to be a star, do we? Because uh-huh, the, the, uh-huh. the the normal size black holes might have been stars, but the supermassive ones, we don't actually know how they formed. Okay. So,
2: true. So, so I'm 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 living in the the dream world where uh, I'm like, ah, oh, those black holes just uh, <laughs> do, you, do your <laughs> thing, black holes. Do your thing. We'll do our thing over here. Okay.
0: We should point out that the scale of the feedback is quite different. I mean, for, yes. so an, an AGN puts out a massive amount of energy and that sort of on a scale of a galaxy can affect the entire galaxy where, you know, a star lighting up and giving some feedback, which is a, a lovely image I have in my head. I don't know how to get it across to you over a podcast, but, you know, of a, a sort of cloud condensing and then as it sort of sp- spins together into a denser and denser object and then at some point it's dense enough at the core that the nuclear fusion ignites and all of a sudden this thing just shines for the first time and does like a i'll try and make a sound effect with my mouth like a <laughs> and, <laughs> and like blow, can we bl- hear that again bl- then? blows out this <laughs>
2: you sound just like it how did you do <laughs>
0: exactly right Um, so like it it sort of blows this blows all the gas around it out so you know if if there were any other clouds of gas who were trying to form in the immediate surroundings they were going to get blown out and you know if you have multiple stars forming like that then then as you say that the the region has been changed and it's it's not so easy to form stars there anymore and that's the kind of feedback we're looking at on a very small and sort of individual scale whereas what you're doing is is looking at it i guess on a population scale so how this is how this looks over an entire galaxy
2: and, and i think what's interesting is there's some galaxies where there's nice examples of nearby galaxies where you see both one is the agn kind of like Centaurus A, which is example of uh, AGN feedback, right? If I, if I remember correctly. Correct,
1: yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> AGN is powering. <laughs> you can see these massive lobes in the radio of just gas being expelled. But in the starburst galaxies, you can also see examples if you then look at maybe in the H-alpha or other kinds of tracers. Massive plumes of ionized gas being ejected from a galaxy and all because of uh, huge amounts of star formation in the inner parts of a galaxy where you fall so many stars, and a lot of the stars are very big and massive that they affect enough of the the gas that it's it 's kind of a galactic scale wind or outflow. You can go from this very small scale oh there's a little star that just formed there oh, what a cute little thing and it 's affecting it's uh so medium to oh there 's a lot of them forming, and a lot of them are like affecting the ism and it 's to the scale where there 's material being ejected from the galaxy and that 's i mean some of the work that we do studying these starburst galaxies, and some of them just have so much star formation going on that they're like, yeah, they're blowing out material.
1: Moses, I know you work as uh, part of several collaborations, uh, research teams, with really cool names like Sing, Sunbird, and Mongoose. Can you tell us a little bit about those?
2: Yeah, so let's start with one that you probably haven't covered before, is the aptly named Sing survey, which is Sing but with two Gs, but this survey is a survey of ionized gas, that is targeting star-forming, or actually galaxies with H1. So it's H1, what we call H1-selected sample of galaxies, which were then observed in the H-alpha and in some other optical bands in order to study the star-forming properties of these galaxies and then even try and study the issue between that and how much gas there is in these galaxies. And then we have Mongoose Survey, which is a survey on Meerkat, and it's a large survey program whose aim is to study 30 nearby galaxies in great detail. So you're going to have very long observations of individual galaxies that will allow us to reach sensitivities that can enable us to see the very faint outer gas in these galaxies and really try and understand where the gas in galaxies comes from, what happens to the gas in outer parts of galaxies, and to really study the cycle of gas that comes into galaxies and leaves galaxies much, much better, because H1 is a very good tracer of this kind of low-density gas in outer parts of galaxies, and we're trying to probe the gas with something like mongoose. And then there's the Sunbird survey, and that's a cool survey as well and it's focuses on studying starburst galaxies and what we call ULIRGs and lurgs and these eulogs and lurgs are luminous infrared galaxies and what's interesting about them is they're luminous infrared because They have lost a lot of star formation and some of them are interacting with other galaxies and because of that interaction it kind of triggers huge amounts of star formation so you have very intense star formation happening in many of these systems and that in some of them we can see signatures of outflows and other feedback effects because of these huge amounts of star formation and so i'm trying to kind of piece together things going from the more sort of calm galaxies dwarf galaxies that are happily forming stars at not very high rates, two galaxies that are going crazy and forming stars at a huge amount and trying to see how all of that affects the the gas in these galaxies and what we then think is going to happen to these galaxies in the future and what that says about how galaxies evolve. Because one point we didn't touch on was, we talked about all this gas, but where does all this gas come from? Because if you keep forming stars, at some point you kind of run out of gas to form stars with, right? So then one of the questions is then, Well, how do these galaxies that have been forming stars for a long time get new gas? And one of the common ways we find is that there's interaction. So the smaller galaxies come by and then get sucked in and then the gas is sucked into the bigger galaxy and used to form new stars. But some people will think maybe there's other gas that's also being sucked in from what we call the cosmic web. So not necessarily in individual galaxies, but out there in the the larger structure of the universe. And so trying to understand those things and trying to understand how much of the gas is coming from these small galaxies being sucked up and how much of it is being rejected from these galaxies is very important to study um, or to understand how galaxies evolve.
1: Fantastic. I'm kind of envious, Moses, that you get to use all of these, this data and these surveys and these telescopes that make images of nearby galaxies, because then you can see them in really beautiful detail. The galaxies that I look at often are very, very far away, and they just look like a tiny point, a tiny dot in the sky, and you can't see any of the cool things that you see. So I'm a little bit jealous. You get to look at some beautiful pictures of galaxies.
2: Yes, that's... Completely agree and love being able to see those galaxies. And even when I'm observing at the salt and it's uh, someone else's program and we're observing some beautiful galaxy, I'm like, oh, that looks so cool. I should, I should go and observe this guy. (laughs) And so that definitely, yeah, it's one of the reasons I like working with these nearby galaxies is uh, on a scientific aspect, the kind of detail you can study them at, but also just uh, aesthetically just makes me happy seeing a cool looking galaxy uh, that you can see, especially with Some of these starbursts and lurks, there's a sort of a lot of wacky things going on, seeing kind of some galaxy crashing into another one and seeing sort of like gas floating weirdly. And you're like, oh, where does that come from? I think alpha me is like one of the coolest things of uh, working with more nearby galaxies. And the data, some of the data looks very cool too. I mean, not for everyone, but sometimes seeing like a nice, I few like spectra sitting there. It's like, oh, look at those cool emission lines sticking there. So even even the <laughs> the sort of less obviously beautiful data can look quite cool in my my humble opinion.
0: It's probably worth bringing up since we've got an expert with us, the James Webb Space Telescope. I mean, that's going to be insane for this kind of work.
2: One one of the cool things about bigger telescopes is that they make these nearby galaxies that you can observe much in better detail it kind of pushes the line further so you can now you can observe more distant galaxies better than you could before and some of the ones that before were like tiny little specks now become Ooh, there's actually stuff going on there that's cool it's going to be yeah quite quite revolutionary and awesome
0: have you put in any proposals for it
2: no it didn't but in the future i definitely want to between all the other telescopes, I think I'm using. I think I'll be okay for now, but <laughs> that's something that <laughs> I don't want to use. I mean, there's so many great instruments that are in development and being developed. Like even at SALT, I'm involved in a near infrared integral field unit instrument that we're developing that will come to the telescope at the end of the year or early next year that will provide some near infrared capability to SALT, which uh, it hasn't had before. The main thing is that unlike just a spectrum on a slit, it allows you to study a wider area than you could before. So you can study multiple parts of your galaxy and get spectra from it, or you can divide up the area you're studying and get spectra from all the little divisions of the area that you're studying. So that's going to be quite exciting. And yeah, there's many other kind of instruments that I'm excited for that are currently around and ones that will be in the future. So there's lots to do for us astronomers.
1: So South Africa staying at the cutting edge of astronomy here. Uh, (laughs) Do you have any final uh, messages for listeners?
2: Galaxies are awesome,
0: Um, uh, (laughs) (laughs) apart from that. (laughs) And ours in particular.
2: (laughs) Yes, I may study other galaxies, but our galaxy is very, very interesting too. (laughs) And often we use our galaxy in the same way as the work that I do will often uh, be useful for the work that Jacinta does because the studies that we do help you to be able to form models and understand the galaxies that are more distant better. What we study in the Milky Way helps us study galaxies that are nearby, because Milky Way things are much, much closer. So Milky Way is cool too,
1: yes. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Moses, and for telling us all about your science and the exciting things happening in South Africa again.
0: Thank you, Moses. Thanks again for joining us, and all the best with your observing. I hope that you get to go back to Sutherland sometime soon.
2: That would be very cool. Thanks a lot for inviting me. It's been great again, and hopefully you'll see me again in the future.
0: (laughs) Hopefully. We'll catch you again soon. Thanks,
1: Moses. So great to hear from Moses again.
0: Absolutely. Like very cool to hear about what's going on now, uh, how they're running this whole telescope and many other telescopes are running in the same manner, uh, remote observing. And it's something which is going to carry on uh, even in the absence of COVID or the eventual absence of COVID because it, it makes a lot of sense uh, logistically. And, and now that we've got the technology set up to do it, it's a no brainer.
1: Yeah. And I hope you won't mind me Announcing this on a podcast to the world. But uh, yeah, Moses also got time on Meerkat for one of his new projects to do much of the science that he was speaking about today.
0: I'm sure he won't mind. (laughs) (laughs) We could ask him. But no, I think that's very exciting work he's doing. Just looking at the whole picture of a galaxy, you know, how it's churning through its gas and changing it. And it's such a dynamic environment Uh, and that's something that i don't think always comes across you look at galaxies as these stationary objects because they're so big and the time scales in which they change are so long you kind of forget that there's an incredible amount of very high energy physics going on all of the time stars forming and dying and moving around and churning out gas and to try and get a a grapple of that like moses is trying to do is it's very cool Mm, yeah I, i yeah i like it I like it too. (laughs) Well, that's good. We like astronomy. Dan and Jacinta.
1: (laughs) We should start a podcast about it.
0: We should. And that can be our tagline. Dan and Jacinta. We like astronomy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we clearly need to go now. Well, okay, I think that's it for today. So, yes, thank you for joining us. And we hope to see you again for the next episode of The Cosmic Savannah.
0: We'll hold it together for the credits. Uh, you can <laughs> <Just>. visit <laughs> Maybe. You can visit our website, The Cosmic Savannah, where we'll have the transcripts, links, uh, other stuff related to today's episode. And you can always follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Cosmic Savannah. That's Savannah spelled S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H.
1: Special thanks today to Dr. Moses Mohotzi for speaking with us.
0: Thanks to our social media manager, Sue Hatting, and all the Cosmic Savannah volunteers for their help. Also uh, to Mark Walnut for music production, Janis Brink and Michal Werczyk for photography, and Lana Sarai for the graphic design.
1: We gratefully acknowledge support from the South African National Research Foundation, the South African Astronomical Observatory, and the University of Cape Town Astronomy Department to help keep the podcast running.
0: You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to help us out, please rate and review us <laughs> and recommend us to a friend. Especially
1: now. <laughs> we'll speak to you next time on The Cosmic Savannah.
0: You're all flustered. Why are you all flustered?
1: I lost concentration. <laughs> what were you thinking? I don't remember. <laughs>
0: I'm like looking at you and you're like How long losing was it. I
1: How long was I staring for? <laughs> no,
0: like not that you were staring, but it's like all of a sudden you're like, like <laughs> What do <am> I say?
1: <laughs> all right, I'm back.
0: Peddling <laughs> furiously. Okay. And we're back. <laughs>